Um, good evening, um, everybody, and welcome uh, to the LSE. Uh, I'm Diane Perrins and was one of the co-directors of the Commission. I'm also director of the Gender Institute here at the LSE. Um, just to say a brief word before tonight's panel starts, um, LSE Knowledge Exchange invited the Gender Institute to run this commission. Um, and what we aimed to do was to take an interdisciplinary approach uh, to look at a range of key areas that impact on gender inequality and power and think about how these might be challenged. Um, the different areas we looked at were economy, law, law, politics, and media and culture. And these were headed up by Anne Phillips, Sadie Waring, my co-director, Nikki, who's down there, uh, and myself. And we worked together with a range of academics from the LSE and from other uh, institutions, uh, along with policymakers and activists. And we also drew on the help of a lot of PhD students to help us uh, write the report. And I should say that the whole project was overseen by Kate Stewart, who's frantically looking for our third speaker tonight uh, as I speak. Um, and we look forward uh, with some trepidation, I dare say, to what our distinguished panellists think about our findings and more generally what to do to confront uh, enduring gender inequality today. So, and also we'd like to hear what you think as well about this enduring problem. So I'm now handing over to Tim Besley, uh, who's Professor of Economics at the LSE, and he will chair tonight's proceedings. So thank you very much for coming, and uh, I hope they have good things to say about our report, and I hope we find out how to challenge uh, gender inequality today. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Diane. Um, uh, friends, colleagues, uh, members of the LSE community and distinguished guests, it's a pleasure and an honor to be acting as chair this evening. Um, as Diane said, I'm a member of the economics department here at the LSE. Uh, but beyond that, I have little by way of qualification for acting as chair, save to say that I have a passionate belief in the importance of the issues that we'll be discussing this evening. The Gender Inequality and Power Commission embodies so much that is good about the LSE which excels in bridging academic and public life and has made me proud to be a member of this institution for the past 20 years. I'd like to pay a particular tribute to the Commission's driving forces, Nikki Lacey and Diane Perrins, without whose commitment we'd not be here today. In spite of the gains of the past century, many challenges remain in making gender equality a reality. Uh, confronting it raises fundamental issues about the way that we organize societies and economies. And it's important to realize that this cuts across the traditional ideological cleavage of left and right. I'm certain that this report will infuse these debates and suggest new ways of looking at this, these issues from a range of perspectives, as Diana's already noted. Um, while I'm sure that they're pleased to have made it to this staging post, uh, in many ways the hard work is just beginning for the Commission. Um, uh, and and uh, it's never easy just to put a report out there and then let it lie fallow. Um, I was involved a couple of years ago with an LSE project called the LSE Growth Commission, which we reported in 2013. And our major policy, one of our major policy recommendations, the National Infrastructure Commission, was only announced by the Chancellor last week. Um, so you'll need to be patient, and I hope that the Commission is committed to the long haul um, with the ideas that it's developing. 
This evening is an important part of launching a process which will see the ideas uh, dissected and debated, and we have a superb panel to get this going, and I see Anne uh, has just arrived, so she's going to come and join us here on the, the panel. So we have three uh, panelists. Um, Anne Perkins is an editorial and comment writer uh, for The Guardian, uh, where she began work as a political correspondent in 1997. Uh, pre previously, she'd been a lobby correspondent for both the BBC and Channel 4 News. Shami Chakrabarti is director of Liberty and one of the UK's most influential human rights campaigners, as well as being a member of the LSE Commission, uh, that we are, um, which is being launched this evening. Uh, and then on my far left is Rebecca Ominora Oyakanmi, who's a freelance journalist and has worked on the commission and has been published by the New Statesman, The Guardian, Open Democracy, among others. Each will offer a few remarks, after which we'll open the floor to general discussion. And I'd like to begin by inviting Anne Perkins to the podium to give her, her introductory comments. Well, hello, and it's, um, it's very exciting to be here, a little bit unexpectedly, but uh, Polly lent on me and domestic, domestic uh, dramas in her house. And it seems actually particularly appropriate because um, when I went into Parliament as a, as a journalist, as a, as a lobby correspondent, um, this is sort of how it went. So, um, obviously, you know, at then as now, a significant part of the job was hanging around the place, chatting to MPs and to ministers, and mostly that took place in what's called the members' lobby, which probably all of you are familiar with. Um, it's, a, it's a sort of um, octagonal, I think, sort of stone, chilly place surrounded by statues of men. And uh, uh, you'd wait for someone interesting to come by. Um, there was a great... Uh, political editor, a woman political editor called Julia Langdon, who some of you may remember, and she used to call it the Reaper Barn, and it did used to feel like um, a sort of transactional, possibly even a sexually transactional place, uh, certainly some of the senior aspects of sex work, um, which some people would say is a little bit to do with political reporting rather than to do with gender, but it certainly felt a lot to do with gender, particularly then. Um, I started doing this job uh, after the 1987 election. Uh, at that election, 41 MPs were women. At that point, the Commons had never had, uh, had never been more than 5% female. And the atmosphere at Westminster was relentlessly male. I, I, I can't even begin to convey how much like outsiders um, and how instrumental women felt. I, I mean, almost the only other women you saw, uh, apart from the very small group of MPs and the even smaller group of women journalists, were either in the canteen or the Hansard shorthand writers. In 1992, the number of women MPs got all the way to 60. And in 1997, after the great all-women shortlist fight in the Labour Party, it was an astonishing... 120. And now, after last May, it's climbed all the way to 191, which is just under 30%. Gee, it still shocks me, this statistic. Since women were first allowed to become members of Parliament, 450 women have been elected. That is nine fewer women 
than the number of male MPs elected in May 19, uh, 2015. The time lag between the political parties beginning to find it embarrassing uh, at the predominance of white men to actually doing something about it is, well, still not finished. Um, a little bit like the time lag between people starting to count the number of women in senior positions in news. Labour finally won the argument or appeared to win the argument for all women shortlists when uh, a small group of them spotted that the losing margin in 1992 was the difference between the women who voted Tory and those who voted Labour. And once it, they could persuade the party that doing something about it uh, was a way of winning elections, uh, what came to be called the gender gap, assumed a new salience in, in Labour Party affairs. Um, but I think the lesson of Labour's first attempt at imposing change is that it takes much, much more than one single policy and one single party to change a culture. Uh, and anyway, the party was shortly taken to court by a couple of aggrieved men and its policy was found to be discriminatory and, and, and they were back to square one. Um, it took another fight before a Labour government was able to change the law. And even then, embedding that policy in the party and in the way the party thinks is still a work in progress. Um, it can be subverted. I, at the last election, so we're talking about six months ago, when Anne Cluid announced that she was going to retire and her constituency in West Wales was told that, she, uh, that, that her successor would have to be chosen from an all-women shortlist, party members constituency party members threatened to go on strike. And in the end, Anne Cluett herself decided that she'd stand again on the all-women shortlist for reselection, and she's back in the House. I mean, I've not, I, Anne's a great MP. I have no problem with that. It's her party that I think needs challenging. And Austin Mitchell, who is in the same position in Grimsby, uh, and who's now a, a, a constituency that's now uh, represented by Melanie Ong, uh, who was chosen from an all-women shortlist, uh, when he discovered that this was what was going to happen, went into a great rant about Parliament being weakened by the growth in the number of women MPs. Now, as this fantastic piece of research shows, the experience in the devolved assemblies, which began with such high hopes of parity and zipping and lots of novel instruments for bringing about some kind of gel and balance, uh, has also run into the ground. I mean, they're better than Westminster, but they're still not great. And it just feels endlessly like a step or two steps forward and then a step or one and a half steps backwards. You don't need telling that however diminished the powers of Westminster, what happens in Parliament still has the power to shape the wider culture. And women at Westminster fight two different challenges. As the report says, they are both over-gendered in the sense that they're seen first as women and only subsequently as politicians, uh, which means that it's no surprise that many of them, particularly women on the right who mistrust top-down change, resent that and consequently tend to belittle it. Uh, and that makes it all the harder for the rest. When I think back to the really terrible, in some cases literally personally destructive experience of the women who were elected for the first time in 1997, the so-called Blair's Babes, 
it feels almost as if it was a kind of, I don't want to belittle ethnic cleansing, but it had some of that, the quality of that malevolence. I mean, in a way, Labour itself, I think, was to blame for presenting their triumph in the way that they did. They defined the new intake from the very start by their gender, and that invited the kind of brutal scrutiny that the media reserves for outsiders, and particularly for women outsiders. And the effect of that was to give journalists at Westminster, who unwittingly bought the the Labour line, permission to treat these new politicians just as women, and consequently obliged to conform to all the stereotypes that their editors expected, and where there were shortcomings, to have them relentlessly exposed. The second point that I think is really interesting that this report makes is that where women are numerically underrepresented, then policymaking tends to be correspondingly undergendered. The consequences on particular demographics are largely overlooked or have been until now. Um, That it's no longer the case is due to five years of really excellent work uh, by the Fawcett Society and work going back at least 20 years and informed by the work of the Women's Budget Group, who argue for a much more nuanced approach to policymaking. In a way, this is not a new idea. It's just another example of how long it takes to bed change down. I remember Harriet Harman, um, a decade or more ago, introducing the argument for mainstreaming gender policy. And... um, even at the, during the Labour leadership election, it became apparent that feminist economics as a minority interest when nobody understood what Yvette Cooper was talking about when she made the case for it during her leadership campaign. Now, I'm aware that in this audience I might be coming rather late to the party, but I find these two insights about, being o- about over-gendering and under-gendering really instructive For one thing, they allow the whole debate about gender to be reframed so that the burden no longer falls exclusively on women to prove why men are doing something, but can be redistributed so that men have to explain why they're not. And if the question is, why is such a large proportion, say, of a party's candidate list male and pale, there must be more of a chance of the process of doing something about it being seen as a positive progress rather than a negative one, a a, a process of construction rather than of denial, at least for the women. I agree it's not necessarily the case, and all the men will see the same. Even when the number of women at Westminster is nudging 30%, as it is now, and probably the most effective political leader at the moment, Nicola Sturgeon, is a woman, this imbalance of personnel and policy remains overwhelmingly significant. You only have to look at the, at the coverage that's emerged in the past few weeks. Look back at the Supreme Court Justice Jonathan Sumption's interview with The Standard, where he mused with all the appearance of sympathy on the difficulty of appointing women to the higher courts when they lack the high-level advocacy experience of their male rivals. And when I wrote about this, the Judicial Appointments Commission angrily refuted my case, pointing out that the majority of commissioners are women and the qualities they ask for do not include advocacy. But that's the evil of institutionalised discrimination. It's in the very institution. So what's the easiest way to to, to, to demonstrate high-level competences of the kind required for the Court of Appeal or for the Supreme Court? It's 
competence in the course of public advocacy? And who do the references come from? Why the judges before whom you appear? At a really fundamental level, there are barriers to women that cannot be easily overcome. And then there are the politicians of a certain age who pay lip service to the cause but fail just as grievously to understand its implications. One of the many flaws, in my view, in Labour's leadership election process, see I may be in a minority here, uh, was that both the leader and the deputy leader were selected at the same time. That meant it was impossible to prioritise a balanced ticket over a particular choice of candidates, as it might have been had the con contest taken place in two stages. And having chosen two middle-aged white men to lead the party, the Tom and Jerry show compounded the situation by announcing that all the senior jobs, the people shadowing the Chancellor, the Foreign Secretary and the Home Secretary, would be men too. And the pathetic backpedalling afterwards, the hasty invention of a shadow First Secretary to allow Angela Eagle a place at the top part of the top table has done nothing to burnish their reputation for competence. And then barely a week after that came the great Tory arm candy scandal, a credit to the growing sense of a feminist identity among conservative women MPs for drawing the media's attention, or at least the attention of the spectators, excellent political correspondent Isabel Hardman, to their irritation of the existence of a router by which they were being drafted in to escort the Prime Minister for the short but very well televised walk from the conference hall to the hotel, conference hotel to the hall. It might possibly have been less outrageous if Cameron hadn't already been in trouble once before on almost identical grounds because his or his people's anxiety to silence the suggestion that the leader has a woman problem led to his pre-election cabinet reshuffle being illustrated, you will probably remember, with pictures of a succession of women politicians parading up and down Downing Street for all the world like catwalk models, catwalk models. and obviously some newspapers found the, found the opportunity to rate them on those grounds entirely irresistible. But it's no good just being enraged by the optics of women in politics, even though it must be one significant factor in the way most women feel about getting involved. There are much deeper and more important factors behind the reluctance of women to come forward for selection that start with the poll evidence, of which there is now a great deal, that show that women are far less likely than men to have engaged in any political activity at any level than men. And there must be many reasons for this. I'm not suggesting that there is one magic bullet, but one is surely the way that politics has been hollowed out and the routes into politics have been narrowed to working at Westminster or being a trade union activist. I haven't yet seen any recent research about the background of the new lot of, of uh, members of Parliament, but I bet it's more likely that a woman MP will have come from a background outside those newly conventional routes in uh, to politics than her male colleagues. Uh, of course, some women have come through trade union activism and even through local government, but it's, neither of them are the reliable training ground or, or, or conduit uh, into Westminster that they once were. Politicians... Uh, tend to live a life, tend to appear at least, to live a life apart in a world apart that fails to engage wide sectors of society, not just women, but black and minority ethnic groups and young people. They're all questioning the relevance to their lives. And that dominance of men, and particularly of white men in politics, the failure of politics to challenge that, 
is part of a process that I think, I fear, is slowly undermining the legitimacy of the entire political process. And that means that getting politics right is fundamental to reviving politics. That alone is justification for the kind of intervention that's been resisted so far across politics and the law and the economy. Quotas are just one of many recommendations in this paper, but I believe they should be the dominant proposal. As the paper points out, across Europe, it's beginning to be understood that the kind of change that needs to happen will not happen incrementally. Or rather, waiting for it to happen will, as Sumption pointed out so regretfully, probably take at least another 50 years. And by then, it seems to me there is a real danger that the institutions on which this country traditionally rests will be losing or may even have lost their legitimacy. I think the experience of the business world may, perhaps unusually, suggest a way that this can be changed. It's in business, and particularly in biz big business, that the prospect of quotas has been on the horizon for a decade or more, and it's made them examine their processes with real urgency, much more urgency than most other organizations. It's changing the way companies like McKinsey think about the way they retain and the way they promote their employees, and particularly their women employees. It's made them much more sensitive to the impact of barriers to women's uh, promotion and engagement in senior jobs. And now, partly as a result, I think FTSE 100 companies have got to 30% of women non-executive directors. So let's propose quotas, but I'm prepared to say not yet. Adopt the Irish plan. Adopt an incremental quota that starts with candidates for elections until the number of men has come into balance with the number of women. Overlay it with statutory obligations for balance in government and match it with demands for balance in Whitehall and the devolved administrations. This is not to dismiss many of the other excellent recommendations in the report because change is difficult and it takes a long time. They'll all have a part to, to, to play, but getting representation right underlies everything else. So that, I think, is the place to start. Hello. Welcome to my living room. I was here last week with some of you. It's always wonderful to be back at the, um, uh, at the LSE. My name's Shami Chakrabarti, and I'm the Director of Liberty. And um, once upon a time, the Sun newspaper called me the most dangerous woman in Britain. <laughs> a little giggle. You get a little giggle at the LSE. When you go to the great city of Liverpool, you get a standing ovation for that. LAUGHTER um, um, as, as, as you can imagine, I, um, I, I dined out on that, uh, on that description for some time, but, but, but sadly my title was stolen from me um, earlier this year because the, uh, the Daily Mail, that other great feminist um, <laughs> epistle, d d decided that the, the most dangerous woman in Britain is, is, is actually a charismatic politician uh, north of the border that we've heard mentioned. Um, and to add insult to injury, she's actually younger than me as well. <laughs> Um, but I can't think of a more important moment to be here and a more important subject to be discussing. And I want to say that it's been an absolute privilege. It's a, it's a huge privilege to be here, to follow the remarks I've just heard, and to completely 
um, to completely endorse this very, very important report at this particular moment in our history. And sometimes one has to capture a moment and make the most of it and not just leave a report on the shelf and to, uh, and, and to um, make sure that the report becomes part of a broader uh, moment, movement uh, and time and, and becomes an agent for, for change. I know that's not always what happens in the academy, but I think this is the LSE. This is not an ivory tower, so it's very, very important that we take this report and make it an active agent for change. Um, just, so a week ago I was here, and then that was, so that was Tuesday, wasn't it? This is Tuesday. And then last Wednesday I had the enormous privilege of going to the premiere of one of the most important movies of recent times, Suffragette. Um, it, it went out on general release, I think, yesterday. Some of you may have already seen it. If you haven't, please go and see it. Ignore the lukewarm reviews from the two blokes that reviewed it in The Guardian and the, um, and the unsisterly reviews of, of those who reviewed it elsewhere. It's an incredibly important movie. It has the great, um, the, the, the great popular cinematic production values and it has the, um, the great history and the great values as well. And I, I'm mentioning this because I think it's going to be um, huge and I think that what you want is to capture a cultural, social moment like that. And when people leave, when people leave um, a performance like that, they have to know where to go next and what happens next. Because people shouldn't just feel angry with nowhere to go. And trust me, when you see this movie, you will feel angry. And you should. And we, as women in the early part of the 21st century, sitting in the first world and sitting in London and sitting in the London School of Economics, shouldn't just feel angry. Those of us who are of my generation and a little older should, I believe, feel a little ashamed. Because I don't believe that the Pankhursts would be so proud of the Chakrabartis. If you look at the sacrifices that were made by the women that featured in that movie for their particular prize at that time, which was the vote, which, by the way, we haven't even enjoyed for 100 years yet, um, I'm not convinced that my generation, so I'm 46 now, so I'm about the same age as the Prime Minister and Vet Cooper and all these other people, I'm not really convinced that my generation has lived up even to, um, to the work and the efforts of our mothers, let alone the work and the efforts of the suffragettes. So I, um, I'm afraid that I don't share... Um, the um, Supreme Court judges' glacial patience um, for change. I don't want to dwell on that particular interview because it was incredibly improper, in my view, for all sorts of reasons. And I've spent an adult lifetime urging politicians not to, um, not to slag off judges, but goodness me, I'm finding it very hard sometimes to, to hold my tongue. I don't have another 50 years to wait and I don't think we do either, for the reasons of legitimacy that were put so eloquently by the previous speaker. Legitimacy is vital to institutions, and we need institutions for a democracy and an economy to function. And there has been a crisis of legitimacy and trust in important institutions in our country in recent years, the executive, parliaments, 
journalism, the banks, and, and so on. And one very important way to improve legitimacy is by um, ensuring that it is demogra- demographically um, representative, if not always um, democratically, because I don't believe in electing the judges. But I th- thought that that interview was a terrible mistake and the... Um, and the assumptions and the um, complacency revealed by it, um, something that really has, to be, really has to be challenged. Ironically, of course, the gentleman in question um, has achieved the pinnacle of his career as a result of affirmative action. So um, it's all very well um, telling us that um, we can't um, we, we, we can't speed up progress in um, gender equality in the senior judiciary because, you know, we, we all have to be... Um, we all have to spend years and years training as advocates and judges before we can be in the highest court in the land. But that's not quite right, is it? Because the gentleman in question never held judicial office before the golden parachute that I believe was intended, actually, to achieve greater diversity and representation in that highest court. So um, interesting, interesting, um, interesting morality tale um, uh, about golden parachutes if they're not, if they're not clearly labelled. Someone might nick your golden parachute, ladies, and, um, and it might not be uh, the person that you had in mind. Um, Meryl Streep, of course, is all over the media because she plays, she's an icon playing an icon in the suffragette movie. She spends about three minutes on the screen playing Emmeline Pankhurst. And that's important, that's important. I don't, I'm not going to spoil this film for you, but I will urge you to go and see it. Uh, one of the wonderful things about the movie is that it gives a lie to so many of the, um, the things that have been said about that movement. It was a bunch of toffs. It was a bunch of posh women toffs. No, no, actually it wasn't. And the heroine of the suffragette movie, played by Kerry Mulligan, who I, who I hope will be uh, nominated for, for an Oscar for it, is a young laundress in the glass house laundry in the East End of London. Um, and one of the great things about the movie is that it demonstrates the importance, the importance of a broad-based movement our struggle can't just be about women in boardrooms or even women in the Supreme Court, that we must have those things. This movement has to go right down to the living room and the factory floor and the shop floor and the classroom and everywhere where, 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 where women live and work and suffer the greatest injustice on earth. I'm not a women's campaigner, I'm a human rights campaigner. That has been my vocation, that has been my adult life. It is my view now, in my grumpy middle years, that gender injustice is, objectively, the greatest injustice on earth. It is the greatest human rights violation on earth. It is global in reach and millennial in duration, which is why I think this report is so right in what it what itself describes as its most controversial recommendation, that there should be some structural affirmative action, call it quotas, whatever you want to call it. And if that feels uncomfortable and we should take more time, I ask you to, to, to think about that analogy. 
If you are dealing with the equivalent of something like apartheid in South Africa, do you say we are ending this injustice but it's now going to take time? Or do you say we are going to take positive steps to rebalance something that has been distorted globally and millennially? Now, I know I'm, I'm probably being more controversialist than the authors who, of this report would like, but I, I only have a few minutes, and I'm just asking you to recalibrate your thinking, our thinking, in order to be more impatient um, with respect than Lord Sumption and to, uh, to honour the memory of the suffragettes who didn't want to be lawbreakers, they wanted to be lawmakers. And again, one of the great things about the movie is it demonstrates so beautifully how people who have had options closed off to them their whole lives and find options closed again and again and again find at some point that they have nowhere else to go but some form of radical action. And I'm not suggesting bricks through windows. I'm just suggesting the lovely, um, logically reasoned and well-researched recommendations of this report. <laughs> so I think that's, um, that's probably already too much of me. And um, I hope not to have embarrassed the, the, the authors of this, uh, of, the, of, the, of this wonderful report. But we don't have to wait another 50 years. I think this is a moment... This is a great place of learning, but, you know, women didn't even get the benefit of a university education a hundred and a bit years ago. Girls weren't educated. Women weren't going to universities. Uh, Christabel Pankhurst did a law degree at Manchester University at the turnish of the century and then was refused. She got a first-class degree and was refused admission to Lincoln's Inn just down the road from here. It takes time, it's taken too long, I'm impatient for change, and that's why this report is something that needs not to just be discussed, it's something that needs to be action. Gina Davis, see I'm all about the movie stars these days, have you noticed? <laughs> I did that law bit and it, it didn't really deliver for me, so I'm now I'm all about the movie. Um, Gina Davis gave a speech in London the day after the premiere of, of Suffragette, and she gave a very, very compelling, um, if not completely open, presidential bid, as, as far as I can tell, and it was wonderful. The audacity of it was absolutely wonderful. And she said that um, you know, people were surprised um, when she was working as an actress. She worked all through her career. She studied drama at college. And, uh, and when her neighbours were, were flabbergasted that she, you know, made a success of this because it's such a difficult profession, um, she would go home and visit her, her parents in small-town America and she would hear the neighbours saying, but we're, we're just flabbergasted that, that, um, that Gina's now, you know, appearing with Dustin Hoffman in Tootsie and she's doing this and she's doing that and, but not being paid adequately, I might add, and she puts this very well in her speech. Um, her, her parents would say, but she, she studied it in college. What's the problem? Why wouldn't she be working as an actor? You know, she said, and, 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 and one of the th lines that I most loved in her, in her speech last week was she said, you know, I, you know, I did some of the things that other actors do. You know, I worked in restaurants. So I, I waited, she said. I was a waiter who became an actor. And, um, 
having seen that great movie last week and having been a small part of this wonderful report, I'm an actor who wants to wait no more. Thanks for listening. Now I've got to follow that. Um, I won't be talking about movie stars. I'm actually going to be talking a lot about myself. Um, sorry. <laughs> um, um, so I was asked to speak about the um, media and popular culture section of the report. And I'm going to discuss that drawing on my own experiences as a journalist. So I want to start by first quoting Catherine Quamby. Now, Catherine is the sort of journalist that I dreamed of being when I first decided that I wanted to be a journalist and not a theatre critic. At the time, theatre made sense to me when the world didn't. Questions of justice, mercy, love and society were broken down and given meaning. I needed to make sense of things because I had questions. Why did half of our year get busted for drug dealing when I was 14? Why did our English teacher tell us one day that JB, a shy, quiet black boy, quite tall, who rarely turned up to school, but when he did, it was with a litre bottle of Coke, which he often drank quite ostentatiously in class, until finally the teacher told him to go away again? Why did our teacher say that he would be predicted an A star, but in all likelihood would fail? And why did our teacher leave it at that? Why was he allowed to fail? Why, during our A-levels, were some of us brown girls went through such fraught battles with our immigrant parents where aunties and uncles and everyone else could have a say in what we were to do with our lives when the likes of our brothers and male peers never went through that and neither did the white friends we would go on to, become, to make at university either? But understanding the world was something that seemed to me the exclusive domain, with a few exceptions, of white men, usually quite old. Still I persevered, and for some time, haunted fringe theatre productions in old pubs and peeling buildings on the outskirts of London, making spurious links between performances and the social injustice around me. Until finally I realised that what I must do is just focus on the social justice, social injustice. And plus, I'd seen a few other black and brown journalists in the national press. I'd only spotted one female theatre critic, and then, even then, not as much as her white male colleagues, whose byline appeared more often than hers did. My mum was really excited too, and she took to calling me every time she saw a black person presenting the news. (laughs) Samira Ahmed was a particular favourite on Channel 4, Um, It was only when I convinced her that I had no desire to be in front of the camera and only hiding behind my pen that she began then sending me articles written by Yasmin Ali by Brown. She hadn't come across anyone else. So once again, it was white men who were most celebrated doing the work that I wanted to do. George Orwell, Paul Foote, Harry Evans leading the, the battle against pharmaceutical companies in the 70s and 80s. This idea was reinforced over and over. Once, at a writer's workshop hosted by a mainstream newspaper, I was told to write about what I know after I told them that I was quite interested in writing about immigration policy. This was around 2007. 
My experiences are bound up with the issues discussed in this fantastic report. I think they show why the media is so important. The media and popular culture shapes thinking on what constitutes common sense and social norms. It's not simply a factual representation of political and social reality. It's indicative of the rules and processes that shape the way that we think and interpret reality and, pres- and, and then they present it back to us as if that's the social mor- norm and not a, a dis- distortion. And this can be incredib- incredibly damaging when it re- reinforces inequality. So for me, this meant in reality that only white men could look at society and investigate its ills. For my mother, it meant I could present the news, perhaps. And for the commissioning editor of the mainstream newspaper, it meant I shouldn't be talking about policy. So back to Catherine Quamby. Fast forward several years, and I'm putting together a feature with advice for aspiring human rights journalists. It's not difficult now to find brilliant journalists exposing injustice and holding power to account. I interviewed Claire Sandbrook, who has doggedly gone after G4S and exposed the conditions of children in immigration detention, and Catherine Quamby, whose groundbreaking reporting on disability rights led to real change, and she's one of the few people still reporting on the treatment of gypsies and travellers. So when I asked her for advice to young journalists, I was quite excited, because I thought, you know, she's going to inspire a lot of people. Um, But what she said actually opened up another can of worms. And I'm quoting her here. I found it impossible for me personally to combine motherhood with long-form filmmaking at the BBC. I knew very few women of my generation who are still there and have children. I think it's a structural problem still to be analysed and understood. In fact, one of the last things I did before I left the BBC was to write a report on part-time and flexible working at the BBC where I interviewed senior managers about their attitudes towards practices in news, current affairs and documentaries. Whilst a few had integrated part-time producers and directors into their departments, they couldn't seem to see that these same producers could be creative programme makers and be creative about the way they worked. I think this is part of an unfinished revolution, she said, not just for women, but for fathers and carers of both genders. So becoming a mother and then taking on caring responsibilities for a seriously ill member of my family could be seen as a a real obstacle to a career in journalism. So to the report. Again, um, I urge you to read the report. Um, It's fantastic. Uh, The Commission heard a lot of evidence around the representation of gender in popular culture and also how women are underrepresented, both as media subjects and producers, and that they face a glass ceiling at the top of media organisations and leave the industry much earlier than men. Um, Some stats that that jumped out at me personally were um, that only um, 27% of executive management positions um, are held by women in media organisations. Um, in the newsroom, uh, in UK newsroom, it's, it's men that dominate news, particularly government and politics, where for more trivial stories it tends to be that they're written by men. Um, the, the campaigning industry group Women in Journalism has identified ageism in British media and 
journalism, which, again, this is something that occurred in other parts of the report as well, the, the sense that the older you get as a woman, the worse the discrimination against you becomes. Um, so some horrible, scary facts uh, that came out of that. Uh, one was that over 60% of women over 45 have experienced discrimination due to their age. 71% worry about being forced from their careers in their 40s and 50s. And women as young as 22 were starting to get scared because they watched older women in their newsrooms being marginalised and pushed aside. The same thing um, occurs in the film and TV industry. There was another um, statistic about female directors. I think they only form... um, Sorry, I've lost the statistic. 14% of directors are women and only 4% of... um, directors of sci-fi and fantasy film are women and I'm sure women make up a lot more of the fan base in sci-fi and fantasy than that Um, the report also looked at the Leveson inquiry and the failure to implement some of the things that were brought up in that particularly representations of um, trans people as well that was something that came up again the media yeah doesn't doesn't do it very well at all Um, Again, the Labour parties looked at the Commission on, um, on the Treatment of Older Women in TV, and um, a report led by Harriet Harman found that women over 50 make up just 7% of the total TV workforce on and off screen. I wanted to say that one because I, I couldn't believe it myself. I think, it's, I think we should be angry about that. Um, again, I'm running out of time, so I'm just going to skip over some stuff. Yeah, I did want to mention... Um, about the representation of Muslim women and the veil. That was an issue that was talked about. In the, um, we heard evidence on that in the commission. Um, again, it's this contradictory idea that, on the one hand, um, Muslim women, particularly young Muslim women, are presented as victims. On the other hand, they're presented as a threat to Western culture. Um, government programmes like Prevent have seen Muslim women so... that. The, the programme treats Muslim women as if they're so disempowered that they don't even have the autonom- autonomy to join radical groups, but at the same time, they foist upon them the responsibility of watching their brothers, their sons, their husbands, and then reporting back to the British state. So, again, it's contradictory and, and doesn't reflect the reality of women's lives. The problem with all of this is, is that it, the power of... of media representations, the symbolic power. And these distorted representations create distorted social means, which, social norms, sorry, which often exacerbate existing inequalities. And one example um, is the way that austerity is presented as inevitable and poverty is treated as a personal failing. And I have um, personal experience of this because I interviewed um, a mental health nurse working in some of the most deprived areas in the country over the summer. And she was a wonderful woman, incredibly passionate about her work. She works really long hours within a completely inflexible structure. It's chronically underfunded. Mental health services are in such a state in this country. But one of her biggest fears was that her young patients had so completely absorbed the negative messages of austerity that they were blaming themselves for getting sick. And they were worried because they hadn't been able to finish their GCSEs and they therefore wouldn't be able to get a good job. And she said to me, it's really shocking. At 17, they feel that their lives are hopeless. A lot of it is based on the fact that they feel they've messed up. 
So they've consumed this message that you just have to work hard and you'll be okay. There's a cultural narrative around people who are deliberately on benefits and that they don't deserve these benefits and it's their own fault so they should work harder. And that narrative is really damaging to my clients. What do you say to someone who suffers from really bad anxiety and drops out of school and actually can't, at that point in time, really cope with the situation that they're in? Um, okay. Well, I'll just finish. I'm sorry, I've really gone over time on this. But I think that's just a sign that it's a fantastic report and you should all read it. There's, yeah, it's impossible to summarise in ten minutes. Um, but I'll just finish with the second part of Catherine Quamby's quote because it's actually a little bit more positive. Um, and she said that... However, I think there is much to be said for turning perceived weaknesses into strengths. Having more understanding of other people's difficulties has made me a better social affairs journalist. The fact that I'm much poorer than I was when I started as a journalist means that I do actually understand on a visceral level what it's like to find it challenging to pay the bills. Having to find childcare in the mornings before doing a story, the Dale Farm eviction comes to mind, means that I have to do a story in a different way from a correspondent who can stay all hours. I listen and I hear in a different way and then I narrate, the I narrate a different story. And that story is more likely to be accurate and reflect um, people's true realities. Thank you very much. Excellent. So thanks to all three speakers for uh, their, their remarks. We have some time for questions and discussion. I think the best thing is if we take them in batches of three and then uh, we'll throw it open to whichever uh, of our speakers wishes to answer them. So who would like to be first? Someone has to catch my eye here. There, we have someone at the back there. There are roving mics, so let me persuade you just to wait until that arrives and then... Uh, I'll look for the, the next person. Um, hello, and thank you to all three speakers. Um, my question is, what can we do, and what can we do within organisations to bring about change? Very good. I think we had somebody down here. There should be a mic heading over that way. Um, I'm Karen Jones, editor of a publication called City Wealth. Um, I have a media business which I've owned for 10 years and we have a gender division uh, to help women in the city. Some of the findings we've had are that the suggestion is women should start their own businesses. It's to do with moving money from men's pockets to women's pockets. Quite a difficult thing to do but a suggestion perhaps, something we could debate. And also we've discovered that Financial services or personal finances are often delegated to husbands or boyfriends, something that probably shouldn't be done if women, again, want to use money as a powerful tool. Here we go. We're going to go up there, and then when you're done, if you pass the microphone down, that'll be the fourth question after we've had the response. Okay. Um, thank you to all the speakers. Uh, my name is Shuku. I'm actually from the BBC. And um, my question is about uh, quotas. Um, I've, I've heard that a lot of the opposition to quotas actually comes from women out of the fear that they will be seen as, uh, will be seen as tokenism. And I'd really like to know what the panel, panel's views is on that. Thank you. Okay, excellent. So we'll go back to the panel, and then, as I say, if you pass that along, we'll be there next. So who, who would like to come in on any of those three excellent questions? Can I say something about the um, women starting their own businesses? Um, 
the report actually does discuss that idea. Um, it, in the media section, it looks particularly at the, this idea of the sort of women... Um, stay-at-home mum who starts her own business and there's lots of focus on that but there are problems again with that because of the the idea that it's all about the individual who has to make change rather than um, everyone making society making change collectively so again there's it, it's quite problematic that it has to be women who sort of get up and do it themselves on their own I think well, that would be my, um, my reflection on the quota question as well, actually. Um, I, I, I want to be honest that I have changed my position during the course of my um, adult life on affirmative action stroke quotas. So when I, um, when I was at this place 100 years ago, 20 years ago, <laughs> um, um, I, um, when I was a young law student and then I was a, a, a graduate, I was, you know, quota, I, didn't need, I didn't need quotas. I looked, at, I looked at my male counterparts. We were students together. We were, you know, friends, lovers, whatever, and then we graduated, and I, I, I didn't see the need for quotas. We were just going to do it ourselves, but I, um, I was naive, is the truth, to the, um, to the structural opposition. And, um, and then when I first came into what you might call what you might loosely call public life. When I first became director of Liberty 12 years ago, having been a lawyer and then a civil servant, I think I was still probably... Um, I, 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 I still probably took a classic liberal position that it, we, we can just have a level playing field and, uh, and then it'll all happen by itself. And when I first started appearing um, on you know, TV shows and, and, and being present people would say to me, um, aren't you worried that you're being invited onto these programmes because you're the token, because you're the token female? And even, to, and even to this day, there are people on uh, websites and in chat rooms who say, that Chakrabarti woman is on TV the whole time. And I've measured this. They will say that even if I haven't been on a particular <coughs> show for years. And this, is, and this isn't about me, this is about us. And the, 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 there's, there's, there's evidence, there's research on this, that if you look at a crowd scene in a, in a movie and you see that uh, a quarter or even less than a quarter of that crowd are women, it looks like there are too many women in that. If a woman speaks in a, a political debate or, um, or speaks at all, she's she's perceived to be speaking for more than her fair share of the time. So the bottom line is my experience now is uh, I'm not so much a token as a beacon. <laughs> and did these guys that inherited power and privilege from their fathers and, and, you know, welcome to patriarchy. Have you dined with us before? My name is Shami. I'll be your server this evening. Let me tell you about our specials, you know. Just um, to, to be against quotas now, in my view, is actually to be selfish it's to be the successful woman who says, I don't want affirmative action because I'm too scared of people saying that I've only got to this position because I'm a token. It is, um, I, I, I've had enough of that. I now want to be part of a broad-based movement that is, that is looking out for all the women, not just the women who formed their own business, who bucked the trend, who were the mavericks, who worked 150% um, uh, as much as the men. I, I want structural change to end this global millennial um, apartheid, and in my view, that takes quotas. I, I agree entirely with, with, with Shami, but I, 
also think that you don't get change unless you take people with you. And I'm aware that a majority of men and women think that quotas are a bad idea. And one of the most depressing things, partly because I knew it to be true in the Assumption interview, was him saying that women didn't want to take appointments to the senior courts because women thought that they would be regarded, as Shami says, as tokens. That's why I think this idea of, of reframing the question to say, why are there so many men here, rather than why are there so few women or why are there so many people, so many few, so few brown people, is such a... It's such a brilliant way of addressing the question and trying to make people, trying to jolt people into understanding um, what's wrong. Can I also just address the other two questions? Because I think they also go to something that's really important and perhaps not said often enough. And that's about the importance of women taking responsibility themselves. And that's true about personal finances. But it's also true about getting change at work. And it's really hard, and I certainly have not been very good at this myself. But the truth is, you have got to challenge. You've got to find the courage. You've got to associate. You've got to build up networks with other women in the workplace. And you've got to go and take your challenge to the management. You can't wait for other people to do it. And that's true about managing your own household finances, and it's true about bringing change about everywhere. So, um, so organise, organise, yeah. find supporters, and but don't exp- don't wait for other people to do it. Engage with them. So we're going to go over there, um, and then um, I'm going to come back down stairs for the next question. So when you go, uh, hi there. Thank you very much for your thoughts. I'm sorry if this is slightly irrelevant or uh, perhaps ignorant question. But I was just wondering why uh, there were no uh, male speakers on our panel tonight and uh, whether that was because of a choice made or because there's simply no credible candidate to speak tonight. And following on from that, we've heard a lot of advice given to women in the room, but perhaps what advice would you give to the main protagonists, white males? What advice would you give to them uh, trying to confront gender equality? Thank you very much. Okay, we're going to come down here. Uh, thank you for your talk. Uh, is the panel not guilty of deliberately distorting and belittling the argument of inequality? Uh, because this is not really a battle about men and women. This is about a battle between the elite and how they dom- dominate the political institutions. The elite being the church, Oxbridge, and the Queen, who is a woman, of course. The fact that they're not seeking to prosecute or end their uh, uh, dictatorship across our democracy... How can we say we really are seeking justice of equality, equality and uh, not go after these small, tiny, rich group? Thank you. Okay, I'm going to come to the second row here, and then I'll come to the front row in, in the next batch of questions. So come down to the second row, middle of the row, pass it down, and that'll be the third one from this batch, okay? Hi, uh, thank you for your time today. Um, I was just wondering how I can um, better encourage the men in my life to have a conversation about this and take it seriously as something that affects them as well. Okay, some meaty topics there. So who would like to lead? Can I I start? Because it's preoccupied me for, for, for most of my career about whether class matters more than gender. And it's quite clear that class is immensely important and, um, 
uh, ability to reach power, you know, ambition, all the things that, you know, that have made it much easier for me to overcome my gender because I come from the kind of background where you're expected to have a job and to do well, um, as opposed to the kind of struggles that I know a lot of other women have faced from families who don't expect uh, as much from them and who run into much greater challenges. And, and, and uh, so I, I, I'm really aware of this. And like Shami, I'm a relatively late convert to the significance of, of gender in disadvantage, and um, not least because of uh, the global impacts of, 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 of gender, but also because I think if you, if you can bring women in, uh, if, where women have a place at the table, you're much more likely just to get a new outlook, which makes all change easier. And that's why I think it's so important to, uh, as part of the business of re-legitimizing political and economic and legal institutions, because you get more voices in that will enable more voices still to come in. So I, I, I have reluctantly um, and belatedly come to think that gender outranks class. Okay, I'll go. Shall I go next? So, so um, great contributions. Two out of three from men, which I, which I, which I'm not churlish about, but I think it's 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 kind of interesting because if you look at the composition, if you look at the subject matter tonight, and if you look at the composition of this room, and we're in the second round of questions, we've already had two from men, and I and I I'm only saying that because I uh, do uh, I speak for for a living every day, and so many um, times when I speak even when the audience is 50-50, um, is or even when there are lots of women in the, the room, the, the conversation is, is dominated by men. Even when I'm chairing, I'm desperately looking for a contribution. And here, it, on this subject, in this place, even in the second round, um, two, two, two questions, uh, it's fine, came from men. And the, the first uh, gentleman said, why are there no male speakers? Well... Uh, I'm sure that was a lovely um, uh, and legitimate piece of provocation. But, sir, how... How, how many times, I, I really mean this, how many times do you go to a similar event here at the school or elsewhere and say, why are there not more women? to encourage the men in your life goodness we could go we could talk about that for, 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 forever um, you could take them to this movie actually I, I, you know, I'm, I'm really evangelical about this movie and, and, and email me if you, if you think it's uh, but, um, but we, we do have to have the, we do have the, to have the conversation it's a really important point because, because I don't want a war and, um, you know, I have a son. I have a 13-year-old son. I was, I, I was once taking him on, a, on an international trip to a, to, to a conference um, about women's equality on the other side of the world. It was in Australia. So that's 24 hours on a plane. So at the time, I think he was about 10. So mum and 10-year-old son are on a plane for 24 hours. Very, very close. And, 
and, um, and I, I told him, um, darling, I'm going to, to, to make this speech about um, gender injustice is the greatest global injustice, and, I've, um, and I'm very nervous about it because I'm normally um, working domestically at Liberty, and I don't I have the expertise in the whole world. You know? so, so what I did was I went into Liberty's offices, and I asked my legal director and my policy director to, uh, to tell me who the best uh, trainee lawyer on the staff was at the time who would do research for me on all the problems, health care, criminal justice, economic, all the things beyond my expertise all over the world. And, and both of them, that's my male legal director and my, my woman policy director, said, Tom's your man. There were six trainees in the offices at the, at, at the time. There was, there was one man who said, Tom is your man. He's the one to do the best research. So, so, so young Tom from a city law firm came up with this massive dossier of evidence of why it is the greatest global injustice Right? And, and I said to my son, isn't that hilarious that the one they recommended was the boy? And my son said, don't be sexist, mum. <laughs> he, said, he, said, uh, he, he, he said, a man can be a feminist too. I said, darling, that's really interesting. This has been a debate within the women's movement forever. Can, you know, I rather agree with you, and I rather agree that we have to do this in partnership and, 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 and go on this journey together. And I said to him, are you a feminist? And my 10-year-old son, three years ago, said, well, yes, Mum, but, but, but not die hard. <laughs> so so, so we, we, need to, we, need, we need to get to a place where, um, where men and women... And this is, re this is relevant to the class point, because I'm not in a competition for victimhood. I'm a human rights campaigner who tries to look at injustice not as black or white or gay or straight or male as, or female. But, we, but you cannot escape the inescapable. But if you look at the planet, if you look at the, the, the most disadvantaged group globally and historically, it will be women. And it will be multiplied when you are dealing with these other factors like class and race and... And, and, and being in the developing world, etc., etc. But please don't tell me, please don't tell me um, that, 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 that gender injustice doesn't exist and if we, if we have the great big left-wing patriarchy as opposed to the great big right-wing one, everything will be all right, because we tried that already and it didn't work. <laughs> I just want to add, because I think um, you shouldn't take our free presentations as being the actual report. We no, had some fantastic no. discussions about <laughs> how to involve men um, during the commission, and we had presentations from men, and, and we talked about the effect of inequality on men as well. And um, one of the conclusions which I agree with, um, I'm not sure if it's... Um, no, it's not a recommendation, but I think um, we discussed the idea that once you're already fighting for social justice, that will inevitably include everyone. So the, there was actually, it was, it was a split whether you focus on just fighting for women's rights or you focus on fighting for trans rights or you focus on fighting for black women's rights or um, whether you focus on fighting for everyone's rights, and that's actually a better way, but I, I don't think there is... But this is a historic yeah. schism, isn't it? I mean, the Pankhurst family pretty much 
split up over it. You know, yeah. Sylvia didn't speak to her mum and her sister. You know, so, so we do have to, we do have to engage. And in the end, I do think we have to do human rights in the round. But that doesn't mean that we are blind no, to some no. pretty obvious things yeah. that are staring us in the face. And class and intersectionality is, is all part of this report as well, it, it, especially class, because we looked a lot at austerity and how the, the recession has impacted people. And we looked at how that's affected working-class men as well, not just white working-class men, but black working-class men as well. In, and, in that, and, and to the lady who says, how do I get my um, partner involved, I would say get him to read the report and have that discussion with him. Okay, um, so I, I'm going to come to the gentleman in the front row who had his hand up, but I, I, I'm, I'm going to risk the wrath of Shami if I don't see a lot of female hands now because I was struggling in the last round so you've got to save me here okay here we go we'll go since you already had your hand up but uh, and I see someone at the back there it'll come to you next okay um hello I'm sorry I'm another boy asking a question um I wanted to ask um something that wasn't mentioned but um which seems to me to be quite important is how to get men to take on a greater burden of household work um, and I wondered what the panellists' recommendations would be to get men to take on that responsibility. Okay, if you let that microphone travel, um, there's one probably already free here that can go to the middle of this row. That one's going to go, yeah. So we'll go down here first and then we'll come back to you. Okay, here we are. Hi, um, I just wondered what your opinions were on younger women challenging the somewhat antiquated views of older women in certain professions, such as law. Um, And (laughs) I mean, one particular example that I've looked at is, I don't know whether you're aware of it, you probably are, um, Baroness Teacher's proposals in the Divorce Financial Provisions Bill that she's trying to get through the House of Lords um, to do with post-divorce, for example, women only being allowed to have maintenance claims of up to three years and what that would do for their... So, um, yeah, I was just wondering your views on how to challenge older women who don't share the same views as somebody of my generation. Thank you. Okay, we'll go up there, and then we'll get back to... Hello, good evening. Um, I'm from the same sort of family as Anne Perkins, and I was encouraged to, to, to make sure that I did the best I can, and I never thought about the fact that I was a female. And like Shami... I also didn't understand the idea of quotas and thought that I could do everything myself and it was fine until I had children. And I think that's the main issue. I'm a teacher and have been a teacher for 31 years and I love my job, but I couldn't actually entertain the idea of going for promotion when I had the children because then you got the emotional pull. And in answer to the lady at the front here who said, what practical solutions can we do? Well, we got together collectively as a group of teachers and we set up our own workplace nurseries and that absolutely revolutionized what we did and we stayed together and we were able to work on so that's one practical solution Um, but following on from that I do worry about younger women who are starting to have children much later because they are concerned about losing their career okay back to the panel who would like to answer we'll turn to get first Let's go. Do, yeah. Why don't you start Can with the back just, of the start? Um, respond to the child care issue. Um, oh, and it also relates, I guess, to getting men to do more housework. Um, we did hear from uh, an academic who had done some research on Norway. I think it was Norway where they had um, where they have actually quotas for maternity mm. and paternity leave. So, 
I think men have to take um, 50% and women take 50%, which is one way of tackling um, the idea that the woman has to spend a lot of time at home raising the kids and, and all the inequalities that come with that. Um, again, that's, that's something that's discussed at length in the report. And, and we did, again, look at unpaid care. And one of the recommendations in the, the economy section is actually to have, and this is really ambitious and quite radical, but a national um, care service. Uh, but I won't try and explain that now because I can't do it in five minutes. But, yeah, again, read the report. Sorry, I keep saying that. No, 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 you're quite right, because people should, you know, read read the report. We're just here to hopefully just kind of, you know, whet your appetite for the movie and the report. (laughs) (laughs) Read the report first, and then go to dinner with your your male friend, lover, husband, whatever, son, and then then, then, um, go to the movie. Um, but I think the, the, well, the thread in the golden thread in, in all of those contributions is is, is the is the big ch- children question, um, and um, you know I was I was I was very glad to hear Yvette Cooper make childcare a big part of her of her um, leadership bid. But I wish she'd said more of that when she was in government. Um, but, but 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 that's not a snipe. It's 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 really really fundamental. The the gentleman that talked about housework okay if you want to live in a dusty house say what the big problem is childcare. that you know that is the and, and and i can't really put the point more eloquently than the the woman who spoke about yeah it was all going to be fine what changed for me was when was when i had this huge responsibility and you see that in the movie as well that's what holds people back if they don't have you know that's when you're torn you're torn between your potential and your um, your huge responsibility for for the next generation, which is a, which is a shared responsibility, and and this is where the partnership between men and women in this project could actually become the most powerful and um, and obvious, because I don't believe that um, that, that, that that the men of, of of generations who never saw their children um, for years and years because they were they were working or they were building their careers and were having such a great time of it. Some of them, even very successful men, had such a miserable time of it that they had to dump their first wives and marry younger ones in order to, to really enjoy childcare the second time round. <laughs> so, so we can all get this, you know, so future generations like yours will be able to get it right the, the, the first time round with a, with a better quality of life and family life. But that does mean... A, rewarding the kind of care that is not currently economically valued and rewarded. And I think it also means um, solidarity and collective provision for things like childcare. Free quality childcare. Absolutely. That's my personal opinion. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> and I would add to that solidarity between the generations. Um, somebody pointed out to me when I uh, was a, had young children and was really struggling uh, that, of course, the moment you most want to get politically engaged is when you're least able to do it because you've got to be home to look after the kids in the evening and so on. And, and, and that's why I think that, you know, my generation, now my kids are growing up, uh, you know, I need to be out there campaigning for all of you lot who are yet to have your children or mm. maybe have small children. Um, and... Uh, Plainly, you know, getting men to, to, to take equal share is equally important. And uh, I think this business about getting in right at the, start, at the start is absolutely critical. I, 
And I know that from, from personal experience. You know, I was so thrilled to have my first child. And I just really didn't want anyone else anywhere near her. And I think that's a really dangerous... You know, you, with hindsight, you understand that's, that's not a constructive thing to do. And no wonder her poor father felt shut out. Um, but I've got an answer. I have got an answer to the housework. And maybe a little bit to the childcare thing as well but particularly to the housework and the cooking and everything, just be rubbish at it. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> just, just tell them, you know, it's, it's out to dinner or they do the cooking. I think that's probably the, the answer. Okay. Um. We're going to go back. We're going to go here. Um, and this... And, and here next, so if you could give them, put the microphone there. Yeah, here we go. Um, hi. So we've spoken a lot about how to encourage men to join to support this movement. Um, I went to a conference last week, four days. There were three men sharing the conference and four young, beautiful ladies walking around handing out flyers and pouring water. And I was just wondering, how do you encourage women, like young women or even old women, who are not really aware of um, considering this issue, how do you convince them that they need to consider this? Okay, then uh, th that way we have it. Yeah, there we go. Hello. Hello. Um, my question is to ask the panel whether um, you feel we have an equivalent of the ANC missing from this situation. So, you know, we, talk, we said it's an apartheid-style problem. I agree with that. There's lots of initiatives. I see those. How do we bring it all together? Okay, so if you could pass the microphone this way into the middle of the row there, please. Well, um, I come from a country where women have barely any recognition. I mean, as you mentioned, they somehow do get educated even just to be marketable to get married. Uh, it's perhaps the subcontinent's culture. However, I was utterly shocked and surprised that a lady, or rather two ladies from uh, Japan, told me that both of them very successful civil servants. And they said, perhaps we were sold the wrong dream. And we, we are feeling as though it was not right or meant to be for us. And both of them are highly educated, went to Todai and then came to the LSC as well. Yet they had the, the regret in them and they were not satisfied despite having done it all because they said as women we have double twice the burden now. We have the burden of the household and we have the burden to be the man of the household. Um, you are rightly talking about justice and fairness and equality, but where is this real justice or equality um, in any ideal situation existing if it is existing? Or what is the ideal that we are aspiring towards or for? What will I want to sell to my daughter in the future? And tell her, wouldn't this not also be discriminating her? Just because she's a daughter, this is what she ought to do. And just because my son is a son, so this is what he ought to do. Where is that ideal balance or justice for us? Thank you. Okay, so we have, this is probably the last round, so apologies to those who weren't able to get in. So let's come back to the panel. Um, and the, uh, who um, would like to take think, on uh, some of those questions? I'll start, I'll start with how do we convince young women. I think um, what I was trying to do with my talk, which perhaps didn't come across, is, is um, to use myself 
What the point I was trying to make is that as a young person looking to change the world, I didn't see people like myself doing that. And um, there is an importance in having a wide representation of people from a wide range of backgrounds, class, race, um, and educational backgrounds in the media and, and doing these things. So th the point I guess I, I was hoping to make with, at the end is that the more... Um, people getting up and doing is this themselves they'll then inspire other people to do it as well so if as a young woman you can see um someone who looks like yourself um you know in our academia or whatever your ambitions are um then you will be inspired to do that too because that's what i found and that's what i found with my friends who who look like me and and, and don't look like people from the mainstream uh, yeah i don't i don't know if you've got anything to okay, add like can i sort of jump, jump in because i think there's a really I think those are really difficult and sort of important questions. I mean, the ANC questions are is a great way of kind of making you think really critically about how radical you want to be and, um, and how that would interplay with embedding change and bringing people with you. And um, I think that raises really difficult questions. But in a way, the, the biggest question, it seems to me, is this one about having the wrong dream, mm -hmm. women who feel they've mm -hmm. had the wrong dream. I wonder how they felt they'd got it wrong. And part of the answer is, of course, well, then what we, what we aspire to is for everyone, whatever their gender, whatever their background or, or, or whatever, to have a choice and to mm. feel they have a choice and to understand the choices they make um, and, and to understand the implications. That's utopia. That's, that's where everyone... That, that, that's what, what one would love to be able to say to one do one's daughters... Um, but I, th um, I think what all of these questions really show, including the one about all the glamorous ladies and the, and the, uh, and the men on the platform behind the microphones, um, is just how multi-layered and multifaceted this is and how complex a problem and how we do have to be patient. Not patient the way Jonathan Sumption thinks we need to be patient, but we need to be persistent and we need to keep pushing and we need to learn from our reverses and think again about how to do it. And I believe the, the solutions we find will help to, to tackle injustice of all sorts. Um, and, and we must be very aware and open to, uh, to learning the lessons and keeping moving forward. Charmaine, do you want to...? Um, um, encouraging young women. Goodness, I get encouraged by young women. I don't encourage them. That's the great thing about... <laughs> about being grumpy and middle-aged that, you know, I can barely use my iPhone, but I have young colleagues and, and a son that can show me how to, to do it. Seriously, inspiration doesn't go, isn't a vertical thing, it's a horizontal and, you know, um, I work for an organisation that, like many NGOs and charities, um, is, um, is predominantly women. And it was ever thus. But all I can say to you is that 14 years ago when I went to work there, the senior management and the board and the governance was all male. And now that is no longer the case. And how did that happen? It just kind of happened one day. Um, it didn't just happen. Partly quotas were at play. We had time-limited time constitutional amendment to Liberty's constitution so that we could have some, rep some equal representation on the, on the board and the council. And after that time-limited quota expired within two years, we never needed to do it again because a critical mass of normalcy had developed. And, 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 and when you just achieve that, even for a relatively short time, people then come because that is a safe, normal space for them to come 
and, and, and inhabit and live. And that's kind of my, that's my experience. And on this stuff about the wrong dream, I, I don't think, um, it, I don't know what was the dream and what was the nightmare, and, but I don't think it, I don't want to tell anybody's daughter or anybody's son that they sh what they should be. I don't tell my son that he should be a supermodel or your daughter that she should be a brain surgeon. What I, what I want is what, is, is what we've been talking about. O real opportunity, real choice, real personal fulfilment. You know, we need Freud and Marx and Einstein probably, to, and they're all blokes, oh dear, and, <laughs> and Virginia Woolf. And, you know, but but um, what I want is for individuals as social creatures and working with each other to feel that those, that, you know, those stereotypes and those bars to individual uh, fulfilment and social progress are, are, are removed. I, my motto, my life motto for myself and for my son, and I commend it to you like this report, is... Anyone's equal, no one's superior. Thank you. I'd like to invite Nikki Lacey to the platform to just say a few uh, closing remarks. So, Nikki. Thank you. Thank you, Tim. I'm, I'm Nikki Lacey, and I had the pleasure to co chair the commission with Diane. And I'm really here, I'm not going to detain you for too long. I just have some closing thanks to make. And first and foremost, of course, I want to thank our panel and our chair this evening, who I think have, have given us the best possible start. All, all of you, Rebecca and Shami, have been involved for a long time. Tim has been a great support of this project from right from the beginning. And Anne, we're so very, very grateful to you for, for stepping in and doing so, so magnificently. So it's been a wonderful evening. Thank you very, very much. I have, yes. I do other ha have other, two other sort of categories of thanks I want to make. The first is to all of those who made the Commission's report pro uh, possible. This is an incredibly collective, horizontal effort. Um, it couldn't have happened without Kate Stewart, who Diane has already mentioned. But really, there were so many people involved. Many of you are here tonight. We've also had a lot of support from Julia Black, Deputy Director for Research, who's you know, made us feel that this, is, this whole sort of gender dimension to the knowledge exchange projects at LSE has been really valued by the school, and that's been very important to us. So thank, thank you. Um, the third um, set of thanks that I have to make uh, goes back to something that Tim said right at the beginning. He gently reminded us that this evening is the beginning, not the end of the work. The, the idea of this report is to stimulate debate. We are not frightened of being controversial. We know that our recommendations, some of them in particular, are very controversial. And so um, this is the beginning of the debate this evening. And here I have two particular sets of people that I want to thank. Um, the first, and I have applied a little tinge of affirmative action here, and I may be risking my old friendship with Shami by saying that I have two senior lawyers, I'm a lawyer by the way, uh, to thank him, my first category of getting the conversation going. And they are indeed Lord Sumption and Lord Justice Leveson. 
Um, I think Lord Sumption's had enough air time this evening so far. Uh, Lord Justice Leveson, we've been very nice to him in the report because we've recommended implementing the proposals of his own report. <laughs> and he has repaid the compliment by helping us to stimulate the debate by coming out to say in today's uh, papers, reported as saying that quotas are demeaning to those they are intended to help. And I think this is exactly the kind of comment that is a good jumping-off point for debate because it's a telling reminder to those of us who do think there is a long way to go of just how far that distance still is. But it also touches on the great need to try to get those who don't yet see uh, the way forward to reflect on the sort of complacency of their own position. Uh, so thanks to, to those those two people. But really, most of all, thank you to all of you, because you are the people who've really started the debate by asking questions. Please, would you uh, come upstairs and join us in further debate over a glass of wine, the reception up on the fifth floor. And thank you very much. And once again, thanks to all of you.